Warning, this video is based upon real events. While there are no graphic pictures, out of respect for the victim's family, the following video describes physical abuse, sexual assault, and murder, which may be disturbing to some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. It's a hot and sticky night in Nixa, a small town in southwest Missouri where everybody knows everybody. It's June 1985, just before 11 p.m. Beauty queen Jackie Johns has just finished her shift at a local cafe and stopped off at the 7-Eleven convenience store before heading home. And although her house was less than a mile away, a three-minute drive or so, she would never make it there. Instead, she would cross paths with someone in the roadway. First, there was conversation, then a struggle, blood, and then finally silence. The next morning, Jackie would be reported missing. Her car, a crime scene, and a whole town would start looking for her. Where was she and who could have done this? The first answer would come rather quickly. The second would linger on for decades. So would this family ever see justice? Well, you're about to find out. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching A Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we are going to take a look at the murder of a beauty queen in the small town of Nixa, Missouri. And I can tell you, Lawyer Up Nation, while I have filmed over 150 videos on true crime and the law, and we have accumulated almost a million watch hours together, it's this video this video that is the most meaningful to me because I lived it. I grew up and I now live in Nixa, Missouri. And what's truly unique about this case from my perspective is that I was 11 at the time of the murder. And then the case went cold for over 20 years, during which time I obtained a law degree and started practicing in Southwest Missouri. So not only am I familiar with this case and the families as a member of the community, but I also personally know most of the detectives and all of the lawyers that took this case to trial 25 years later. So we're going to look at the facts of the case. We're going to look at the evidence. We're going to look at some actual crime scene photographs. Then we will look at the trial and how the jury put all of the pieces of evidence together along with the testimony to paint a clearer picture of what happened to Jackie Johns, all in today's episode. If you enjoy the episode, hit that like button for me. If you have a question or a comment, put it in the comment sections below. And if you haven't subscribed to the channel, what are you waiting for? hit that subscribe button now. So come with me to Nixa, Missouri, a suburb of Springfield, which is the home to Bass Pro Shops and Springfield-style cashew chicken. It's 1985, and Nixa boasts a population of about 3,500 people. And like I said, it's a town where everybody basically knows everybody. It's a town where Jacqueline Sue Johns, Jackie, 
the daughter of Les and Shirley Johns, lived. A recent graduate of the high school there, she was popular, having recently won a beauty pageant at the town festival, being crowned the Sucker Day Queen. Now, yes, Lawyer Up Nation, you heard correctly, Sucker Day Queen. What is Sucker Day, you ask? Well, that's a fair question, so let me explain. First of all, a sucker is a fish. And in Southwest Missouri, we like to have fish fries where multiple families come together to share a meal. Sometimes a whole block will join in and sometimes they shut down the schools and the whole damn town has a fish fry. That's Sucker Day, Nix's town festival that has been going on for over 60 years. Anyway, Jackie won the festival's beauty pageant. So, not surprisingly, the then 20-year-old was described as attractive and charismatic by those who knew her. She also drove a distinctive black Camaro with a license plate that read Jackie One. At the time, she was living with her family in Northeast Nixa, attending college and working part-time at a local cafe where she was a customer favorite. Quote, she was just so cute, and she had a way of just drawing people in with her personality. At the time, she was dating a Cody Wright, with whom everyone would say that she was wild about. Cody had a bit of a checkered past, but nothing of any grand significance. And really, the only hiccup in an otherwise happy life was a brief stint where she had worked at a local aluminum foundry that specialized in manufacturing boat pedestals called Springfield Marine. The business was owned by Garnet Carnahan, a wealthy, well-connected local businessman. And Jackie got the job there because the Carnahans and the Johns were neighbors with their homes within a few hundred yards of each other. But her employment there was short-lived, and it wasn't the business in general that was the problem. The Carnahan family was well-loved in the community. It was one individual, Gerald Carnahan, the 28-year-old son of Garnet, that was the issue. You see, Gerald worked at his daddy's foundry, and accounts were that he was infatuated with Jackie and seemingly would not take no for an answer. Friends would say that the sexual harassment became so constant that she quit her job there and ultimately started working at a local cafe. And so, there she was, on the night of June 17, 1985, winding down her shift at the cafe and getting ready to leave. Her boyfriend, Cody, would stop by, and the two would have a conversation just prior to her leaving. Cody would leave first and go home, or so he said. And then Jackie left, also headed home, but she would never make it to her destination. Early the next morning, June 18th of 1985, a delivery driver would recognize Jackie's vehicle abandoned on the side of US 160, a main thoroughfare running through Nixa and leading to Springfield. He contacted a mutual acquaintance who happened to be Jackie's boss at the cafe, who immediately went to the vehicle, which was less than a quarter a mile away from the restaurant. As he approached the car, he noticed that the door was partially ajar, and when he looked inside, he could not believe what he saw. A purse, clothes, and blood. Lots and lots of blood. When police arrived, they searched the car, Jackie's keys still in the ignition. 
They noticed dirt and leaves in the back seat. Jackie's pants, with one leg turned inside out, lay behind the front seats. Her shoes were in the floorboard behind the driver's seat, which was bent forward and broken. Her top and underwear were found soaked in blood, and in the trunk they found a tire iron covered in hair and blood. But no Jackie. A quick call to her parents confirmed that Jackie had not returned home that night, and nobody had heard from her. So, given what they observed in the Camaro, authorities assumed the worst and launched a massive search for the 20-year-old. Her sister, Jeannie, would get a call that day while working as a bookkeeper at Landmark Bank. The call would tell her that her sister's car was discovered abandoned, covered in blood, and that she was missing. Jeannie would immediately turn to the worker next to her and say, My sister is missing. I have to go. That employee's name was Diane Roberts, my own mother. True story. And I specifically remember being told later that night that Jackie was missing. I was 11 at the time, and you know I was shocked. Hell, the whole town was shocked. And from there, it seemed like everybody in town joined in on the hunt to find her. I can remember piling in the car and driving along a river south of town called the Finley River, and we were looking for her. As a family, we didn't really know what we could do to help. We just knew that we wanted to help. And really, as a kid, this was the first time that the reality that somebody could die, somebody could go away and not come back, really sunk in with me as a child. The search went on round the clock for four straight days, when on June 22nd, it would come to a tragic end. Two men were fishing at Springfield Lake, a small lake a few miles north of where Jackie was last seen, when they saw something in the water. As they drew closer, they realized it was a woman's body, naked, covered in mud, murdered. Law enforcement would recover the body, and it was sent to the state crime lab in Jefferson City, Missouri, where an autopsy would reveal that Jackie had been struck multiple times in the head with the tire iron found in the trunk of her Camaro. There were also signs of assault, so a forensic exam was conducted where vaginal swabs were collected. Authorities were also able to determine that due to a lack of any significant water in her lungs that she had been killed before she was dumped into the lake. And so the investigation into who could have done this began. Trial testimony would later reveal that 189 items of evidence were taken from Jackie's Camaro the day of its discovery, and maybe none more important than a simple receipt from the local 7-Eleven convenience store located about a mile from her home, time-stamped on the night of her disappearance just before 11 p.m. Here's a picture of that convenience store today. It's got a new name, but the structure basically looks the same as it did in 1985. 
Naturally, law enforcement headed to the convenience store, and the 7-Eleven clerk working that night would confirm that Jackie had indeed stopped in just before 11 p.m., purchasing cigarettes and hairspray. And here is what is odd about this discovery. Jackie's car had been found on the shoulder of US 160 between the cafe where she had just left and the 7-Eleven she visited further north. This may seem insignificant at first blush, but what that meant was that Jackie would have left work, headed north to the convenience store, and then had to have returned south for a spell only to reverse direction again to where her car was discovered, all within the span of about a mile. And while that's certainly possible, it is highly unlikely that Jackie is driving in circles at 11 p.m. at night. A more likely scenario, given the fact that she was murdered, was that her car was purposely placed there by her abductor. During the vehicle search, investigators also found a greeting card stuffed into the dash of her vehicle. Inside, a little handwritten note scribbled by her boyfriend, Cody Wright. Investigators would then question Cody, who told them that he had been with Jackie at the cafe before she got off work. He would say that from there he left and he went home and went to bed. But living alone, he had no one to confirm his alibi. And although investigators would say that he voluntarily came in, was distraught and forthright in answering questions, he would remain a person of interest in the case for decades. Next, law enforcement would zero in on the cafe and its regulars theorizing that uh, someone may have become obsessed with Jackie and followed her that night. And the theory gained some traction as they discovered that a, quote, town weirdo, as he was described, had been leaving Jackie unwanted gifts. But in the end, they would learn that he had a solid alibi. He was in the county jail at the time of the murder. And so police were left scratching their heads until an anonymous call came to the tip line that brought a major break in the case. Remember Jackie's unique Camaro? Well, the caller described another very distinctive vehicle parked behind the 7-Eleven around 11 p.m. the night Jackie was killed. It was a blue and white 1960s-era Chevrolet pickup truck. Soon, a second witness would come forward saying the same exact thing, that they had also seen a custom blue and white truck near the store that night. And much like Jackie's car, everyone in town knew who owned that truck, Gerald Carnahan, her former boss. I felt sick when I heard who it was. He was not a good man. That's a quote from friend Dana Spencer after she heard the news. So here's what investigators knew at this point. She went from work to the 7-Eleven. From the 7-Eleven, the trip home was only about nine-tenths of a mile, east on a road called CC that bent back south, and then a single left turn would put her on the narrow country road shrouded in trees that led to her trailer house. But that route also required her to travel past the Carnahan family compound owned by Garnet Carnahan. And I call it a compound because it was a huge house, swimming pool, tennis courts, and lots and lots of land. 
Heck, the driveway back to the home is half a mile long, and it's a beautiful place. I've been there myself years ago, swam in the pool. It's a nice compound. And while Gerald Carnahan lived about two miles to the north by a golf course called Siler's, he spent a lot of time at his father's place, which Jackie would have had to have passed on her way home. Well, this was obviously big news, and so law enforcement sought to question Gerald Carnahan, but at first, they couldn't find him. They finally did when relatives revealed that he was holed up in a cabin in Max Creek, Missouri, a little town about an hour north of Nixa. Carnahan was hauled in and would tell police that he knew Jackie from the cafe and that she had briefly worked at his family's local business, but otherwise, they really didn't know each other. And then he told them that he, too, had an alibi. He said that on the night of the murder, he had dinner with his stepdaughter, and they returned home well before 11 p.m., where he remained for the balance of the night. And Carnahan's stepdaughter would confirm his story with authorities, and stating that although she had left to go shopping for a curling iron, that Gerald was there when she returned. She stated that she then went to bed and was confident that she would have heard Gerald leave the house if he had done so. And so, although he appeared to have a solid alibi, detectives were still suspicious, noting that during the interview, Carnahan had cuts and abrasions all over his hands. And so the investigation would continue, with its focus closing in on those in and around Gerald Carnahan. First, investigators learned that Gerald was actually well acquainted with Jackie and her entire family. Then they got some shocking news from Gerald Carnahan's own brother. He told a different story about the night. He would tell police that he saw Gerald's truck sitting empty and parked along the road near the driveway to his father's home after 11 p.m. on the night of the murder. If true, that would have put him in a perfect position to intercept Jackie on her way home that evening. And this was shocking news. But despite the investigators' strong suspicions about Carnahan's involvement, they still had no physical evidence to link him to the murder. What they did have was information that he had lied to them about his relationship with Jackie and his whereabouts that evening. He wasn't home at 11 p.m. on the night of Jackie's disappearance. He was out and about. So prosecutors decided to present what they did have to a grand jury in 1986, who indicted Carnahan for lying to investigators. But when law enforcement went to arrest him, they learned that he was on a plane to Los Angeles with a final destination of China. His father had just bought a factory there, and so it would be the perfect place to lay low for a while. But a phone call is still faster than an airplane, and Carnahan would be arrested at the airport and brought back to Missouri. He was jailed, but would immediately make bond and was back out on the streets. Ultimately, everybody knew that the charges were weak and could easily be explained away by a simple misunderstanding. And as Daryl Moore, former prosecutor for Greene County, said in an interview, he was born into a wealthy family and could hire the best defense attorneys money could buy. And it took a while, but eventually Carnahan's lawyers would beat the charges, and from there, Jackie's case would go cold for years. And within a couple of years, mom, Shirley Johns, would pass away in 1998, being survived by her husband, Les, 
and her daughters, Joyce and Jeannie. As for Gerald Carnahan, he would become a magnet for suspicion in multiple cases. Let's jump to June of 1992. Three women disappear from a Springfield, Missouri residence. Stacy McCall, Susie Streeter, who had both just graduated from Kickapoo High School, and Cheryl Levitt, Susie's mother, all went missing from Levitt's Springfield home. And to this day, 30 years later, the case remains unsolved and the lady's whereabouts unknown. And while there have been numerous suspects over the years, there have been no arrests. One of the suspects, Gerald Carnahan, was acquainted with Susie Streeter through her ex-boyfriend. And it's beyond the scope of this video, but there are many who believe that Gerald Carnahan was involved in their disappearance. And remember, Springfield Marine, where he worked. It's an aluminum foundry that melts aluminum and pours it into forms. They melt metal. Those furnaces burn at about 2200 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about 500 degrees hotter than you need to cremate a body. It's just food for thought. That being said, I should note that the case of the missing Springfield 3 remains unsolved and Carnahan has never been charged with any involvement in their disappearance. If you are interested in the story of the Springfield 3, make sure you subscribe to the channel as we have a lawyer up on that topic presently in production. Still on the streets, Carnahan would finally face some justice in 1993. First, he tries to kidnap a woman off of Ingram Mill Road in Springfield, Missouri. He's indicted in March and then, of course, makes bail. But while out on bond in July, Carnahan gets into a drunken altercation with officers at his home where he brandishes a shotgun. Then in September, Carnahan breaks into a competitor's business, Custom Aluminum Foundry in Aurora, Missouri. He steals $60,000 worth of equipment and sets the foundry ablaze. And with all of Gerald Carnahan's lawlessness, his luck was about to run out. He would be convicted of attempted kidnapping and sentenced to two years in prison. He would be sentenced to 15 months for his drunken encounter with law enforcement and later received four years in prison after he pled guilty to burglary, stealing, and arson. But these prison terms would run concurrently or at the same time. So on September 19th of 1997, Carnahan is released from prison. And things were relatively quiet until November 24th, 1999, when Springfield Marine Carnahan's employer and his father's business also goes up in flames and is a total loss. And while suspicions swirled around Carnahan and his associates, he was allegedly physically in China at the time, and no one has ever been charged in the blaze. At this point, it has been 15 years since Jackie's death, and it would be 10 more before justice would begin to surface for Jackie Johns, because in those 25 years, DNA science would take a substantial leap. Now today, DNA evidence is commonplace. It was not back in 1985. In fact, DNA would only first be used in a courtroom in the United States two years after Jackie's death in 1987. But back in 1985, and even though DNA use in a court of law was not really a thing, investigators had the forethought to collect it anyway. 
And, of course, forensic science and DNA technology would advance over time. So in 2006, Missouri State Highway Patrol Sergeant Dan Nash, who is a story unto himself, decided to take another look at the Jackie Johns case. In evidence, they still had the vaginal swabs from the autopsy, which also contained what they knew to be semen. In the 1980s, they didn't have the ability to match DNA evidence. Now they did. So in March of 2007, law enforcement started matching DNA evidence with persons of interest in the case. First up, boyfriend Cody Wright, who voluntarily provided his DNA sample. The DNA profile from Cody was sent to the crime lab and no match. He was not the killer. So that basically left one suspect. The problem, Gerald Carnahan was overseas working at Springfield Marines factory in Shanghai, China. So law enforcement waited. While overseas, Gerald Carnahan had married a woman that worked at his father's factory there. And unfortunately for her, she had developed eye cancer. They chose to have her medical care performed in the United States, and so they would fly back and forth for treatment. And she had one such appointment in August of 2007. And when Carnahan and his wife returned to the States for her appointment, law enforcement pounced. Within 24 hours, there was a match at the crime lab between Carnahan's DNA profile and the vaginal swab that had been preserved for 22 years. So on August 9th of 2007, Carnahan is arrested and charged with first-degree murder and Carnahan would be jailed and held without bond as both sides revved up for the three-year legal battle that was about to ensue. As the case progressed, there were dozens of continuances, some due to case issues, some due to illness, and there was a change of venue from southwest Missouri up to the St. Louis area. But eventually, in September of 2010, one of the most anticipated murder trials over the past century within Missouri was finally underway with Judge Michael Jameson presiding. The prosecutor, Daryl Moore, had previously announced that he would not seek the death penalty against Carnahan, in part because Jackie's father's desire to see a speedier trial. Les Johns, then 80, said he wanted to see Carnahan convicted before he passed. The defense team consisted of three Springfield lawyers and was headed up by D. Wampler, a well-known criminal defense attorney who had practiced law for well over 50 years prior to his passing in October of 2021. And as I mentioned, I personally know and have had cases with every attorney in this case, and they're all very good, articulate lawyers. This trial was definitely set up to be a heavyweight battle between legal counsel. The trial kicked off with the prosecution calling Alan Woolard, a former employee of Springfield Marine, who said he saw Carnahan's distinctive truck twice on the night Jackie went missing once parked behind the 7-Eleven near English Village Mobile Home Park, and the other time, the truck was sitting empty on the side of U.S. Highway 160. On cross-examination, defense attorney Joe Passanisi was able to get Woolard to admit that he was a heavy drug user in the 80s, 
and that he had previously lied to police and in court. He also pointed out that Woolard's estranged wife had lived with Carnahan following their split and that he had stated that he, quote, wanted to see Jerry rot in jail. So really, any initial benefit from that testimony was effectively neutralized by the defense. Then the state called Wade Pierce, who testified that he had called authorities telling them that on the night in question, he had seen Gerald Carnahan sitting in his truck near the clubhouse of the English Village Mobile Home Park right behind the 7-Eleven convenience store. The defense again attempted to break down his account, but Pierce stood by his testimony, which ended with him saying, quote, I know what I saw, end quote. Next to the stand was a reluctant Kenny Carnahan, Gerald's brother, who had been subpoenaed by the state. Kenny Carnahan testified that he and some family members had gone to Branson to see the Ball Knobbers country music show and were returning to his father's home when he spotted Gerald's truck sitting empty at the side of the road just prior to midnight. The prosecutor was also able to get Kenny Carnahan to admit that his brother had asked him not to mention the sighting. Again, attorney Wampler attempted to discredit Kenny Carnahan's statements about his memory that night, but he was never able to get him to retract that he was sure that the truck he saw was Gerald's. Then the jury heard evidence from retired Highway Patrol Trooper Tom Martin, who bagged and tagged the evidence that was taken from Jackie's abandoned black Camaro, he testified about the bloody jeans, the bra, the panties, as well as the bloody tire iron with the hair matted to it that was discovered in the trunk. Then the two main crime scene investigators would take the stand. First up was Dwight McNeil, former sheriff of Christian County, which is the county where the vehicle was discovered and who is now a private investigator. He testified about finding Jackie's abandoned Camaro on US-160, then about the scene where her body was collected from Lake Springfield, and finally regarding details he recalled in attending the autopsy that was performed. Prosecutor Daryl Moore asked McNeil to identify several pictures that were displayed on an overhead projector to the jury. Those pictures included crime scene pictures taken at the lake, where mud obscured much of Jackie's face and body. In autopsy photos, much of that mud had been cleaned off, revealing a face that was bruised and bloodied and disfigured by significant swelling. Another photo would show a deep wound in front of Jackie's right ear. Specifically, Dwight McNeil testified that, quote, she had been beaten severely about the face and there was significant bruising, concluding that Johns was virtually unrecognizable after the assault. McNeil would also testify as to the physical evidence that supported that a sexual assault had occurred, including the fight that Jackie had put up, testifying that she had defensive wounds and bruises on the backs of her hands and knuckles. The next witness was Gene Geitzen, a former criminalist at the Springfield Regional Crime Lab. He testified that he was present when authorities recovered John's remains from Lake Springfield as well as her autopsy. Geitzen explained to the jurors how the DNA evidence was collected, essentially using a swab with a cotton tip to collect matter. And then from there, he explained the process where those swabs are immersed in a liquid that extracts semen. The semen is then used to create a microscopic smear on a slide. On cross-examination, Guyton acknowledged that semen was not extracted from every swab, but he did find intact sperm on some of them. 
Wampler was dogged in his questioning of both of these officials about the custody of the evidence and exactly how that evidence had been stored and handled in the 25-year-old murder case, with emphasis on the vaginal swabs that were taken. And Wampler did score some points when witnesses McNeil and Geitzen disagreed on whether Dr. J. Dix, who performed the autopsy, had recovered any fingernail scrapings. McNeil testified that he did, Geitzen said that he didn't, and they couldn't ask the good doctor because he had passed away in 2002. Regardless, no one seemed to know what had become of these fingernail scrapings, if they ever existed at all, a fact that was repeatedly emphasized by the defense. And then came the DNA evidence. Jason Wyckoff, a DNA analyst with the Missouri Highway Patrol Crime Lab in Jeff City, took the stand. Wyckoff testified that he created a DNA profile from blood found on the car jack in the back of John's car and from semen extracted from the vaginal swabs taken at John's autopsy. Wyckoff testified that he was able to get a full DNA profile from the semen fraction, as it is called, and that it did not match boyfriend Cody Wright, nor anyone else in the FBI's DNA database. He also testified that in 2007, a sample of Carnahan's DNA was collected with a search warrant, and after a comparison, Carnahan's DNA was a match. He stated that the statistical chance of the DNA belonging to another person was 1 in 6.039 quadrillion. And for reference, there are 15 zeros in a quadrillion. So it's a really big number. On cross-examination, defense attorneys challenged the validity of the DNA evidence. The defense would point out that biological materials degrade over time and that the evidence in this case had surely degraded over the 20-plus years, especially given the fact that it had not been refrigerated during that time period. When asked about the possible degradation of DNA evidence over time, Wyckoff stated that while there was some deterioration of the evidence over the years, it was still perfectly capable of being tested. Then, to remove all possible doubt, the state called Gina Panetta, a supervisor at a private DNA testing facility in New Orleans, who provided a second opinion that concurred with Wyckoff's work that linked Carnahan's DNA to John's body. And with that, the state arrested and the defense began its case. Defense attorneys called Craig Patterson and Rita Swafford, who both testified that they were returning home after a trip to Hydraslide, a water park in Springfield, on the night of John's disappearance. They stated that they stopped at the 7-Eleven convenience store and did not see Carnahan's truck parked in front of the English Village mobile home park while they were there at the store. Another witness, Bill Jenkins, testified that he had witnessed a car and a truck very similar to Carnahan's and John's parked on the shoulder of 160 that night. He testified that he saw three people surrounding the car and that none of those people looked like Carnahan. And this injected the idea that an accomplice could have been involved, which was the topic of much discussion I had with witnesses that I interviewed in connection with this video. Investigators had determined that it was Jackie's car and not Gerald's truck that was used to drive her from the site of her abduction near the Carnahan compound to Lake Springfield where her body was recovered, which means that whoever ditched the Camaro on 160 still had to get back to their vehicle at the place where the abduction occurred. Did they walk it? Possibly. 
or maybe an accomplice, gave the killer a ride. Next, the defense called Rita Sanders, a former police officer and now attorney in Springfield, who testified that she had witnessed about 10 to 15 boxes labeled, quote, Jackie Johns, kept in a, quote, tremendously hot property room at the sheriff's office. But Sanders would also admit during cross-examination that she had never looked into the boxes to see what was stored inside of them. Then Sarah Collins, Gerald Carnahan's former stepdaughter, took the stand. She testified that she and Jerry had dinner at the repair shop that evening. She said that she had dropped him off at home and then went shopping for about 45 minutes for a curling iron. She said her stepfather was home when she got back around 9.30 p.m., and he was still there when she went to bed an hour later, stating that, quote, if he left, I was not aware of it. However, and this was big, on cross-examination, she would admit that it was possible that he could have left while she was asleep. The defense then rested. The jury would hear closing arguments, of course, from counsel and retire to deliberate on a verdict. With the DNA evidence, multiple witnesses placing him near the scene of the crime, and his own stepdaughter basically admitting that he could have left the house, on September 23rd, 2010, a jury would find Gerald Carnahan guilty of first-degree murder and forcible And by October, Carnahan would be sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. So is that the end of the story? Well, not exactly. Two years later, Carnahan would file a motion to vacate the judgment and his sentence in the case, claiming that his trial attorneys erred in not calling or interviewing certain witnesses and failing to counter the DNA evidence with his own expert. That motion would be overruled. He tried the same motion again in 2020 and got the same result. The jury verdict and sentence stands. So that leaves one final question. Where are they today? And let's talk about the Johns family. Les Johns would pass away in 2013 and be buried alongside his wife and Jackie in a cemetery about 30 minutes east of Nixa. They would be survived by daughters Jeannie and Joyce, who both still live in southwest Missouri. And although he would live to be 85, those that knew Les always said that he actually died of a broken heart the day that Jackie was murdered. Gerald Carnahan is in the Potosi Correctional Center, a maximum security facility about an hour outside of St. Louis where he will likely live out the remainder of his years. Ultimately, if you want more information on this case, you can watch Beauty Queen Murder, which is episode 10 of season three of the show In Ice Cold Blood, streaming on Oxygen.com. The story is also featured on the show Beauty Queen Murders, and that's streaming on Amazon Prime. And if you're more of a reader, the book, quote, Murder on a Lonely Road, also tells the tale although the family claims that there are several factual errors in that work. And as for Jackie Johns, may she rest in peace. So that's the episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, hit that like button for me. If you got a question, you got a comment, put it in the comment sections below. And if you haven't subscribed, smash that subscribe button now for me. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer Up.